On this edition of the program, the campaign undertaker comes for Ron DeSantis and my final predictions on the New Hampshire primary from Manchester, New Hampshire. It's all coming up. This is made possible by Oh Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, V, and Craig. On top of spaghetti, all covered with cheese. I lost my poor meatball when somebody sneezed. More campaign stops, more interviews, I would do it. But I can't ask our supporters to volunteer their time and donate their resources if we don't have a clear path to victory. Accordingly, I am today suspending my campaign. I'm proud to have delivered on 100% of my promises, and I will not stop now. It's clear to me that a majority of Republican primary voters want to give Donald Trump another chance. They watch his presidency get stymied by relentless resistance, and they see Democrats using lawfare this day to attack him. Well, I've had disagreements with Donald Trump, such as on the coronavirus pandemic and his elevation of Anthony Fauci. Trump is superior to the current incumbent, Joe Biden. That is clear. I signed a pledge to support the Republican nominee, and I will honor that pledge. The problem with Ron DeSanctimonious is that he needs a personality transplant, and those are not yet available. The Ron DeSantis campaign ended on Sunday, and yet it probably ended about the time that it began. In fact, I would say it ended before Ron DeSantis actually announced. It ended when the Trump campaign started running against him and he didn't respond. I looked forward to this matchup. I thought that Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump were going to have a real knockdown, drag out fight. I thought this was going to be King Kong versus Godzilla because there were no two more ardent fan bases and, to be totally honest, more accomplished Republican politicians over the last 20 years. Donald Trump pulled the biggest upset of all time, became an institution, truly redefined American politics for the intervening eight years since he announced his run for president. And Ron DeSantis is somebody that got nearly as much press and had electoral utility in being reelected in Florida. He became a absolute Institution in the minds of our political discourse because of not only what he did with COVID, but going after Disney and sending migrants to Martha's Vineyard. More on that in a second. But the reason why I thought Ron DeSantis had a shot in this race is because he had an opportunity to demonstrate things that people in the America First movement and the Republican Party at large were saying 
in private. Specifically, that Donald Trump is distracted and picks the wrong people. You see this a lot with uh, folks who fall out with Trump but want to remain on the America First side. Now, they don't usually say it for long because they eventually want to get back onto the mothership and, you know, uh, uh, for as much as Donald Trump exiles people, he does grant clemency almost just as often. So nobody really goes hard on Trump for long. But when they do, it's about how Donald Trump empowers the wrong people, that he doesn't have a great judge of character. There's also the fact that Donald Trump is cowed by the Manhattan-based legacy media that he's wanted approval from forever. It is hard-coded in Donald Trump's DNA. A, a guy from Queens who desperately, desperately wants the New York Times to say a nice thing about him. It's why he keeps talking to Maggie Haberman. Desperately wants to be the Time Man of the Year. These are New York City and Manhattan institutions and he will always look to them for approval and validation and then there's the fact that he's bad under pressure America first people will point to various points in time when Donald Trump just quite simply made the wrong decision and it usually happens when the chips are down Ron DeSantis wanted to be able to not only say that to point out the problem, but position himself as the solution. We're going to get to this in a little bit, but if Ron DeSantis did that well, if he did it aggressively, I still think he probably would have only had a puncher's chance against Trump, but it still would have been a chance. DeSantis didn't do that. Make no mistake, DeSantis is on the national stage because of his governance. Not only his pushback against COVID restrictions, which have put him on the map and largely been validated by history and electoral spoils, but his stance on public education and public safety. Put simply, he does the thing where a lot of other people talk about how the thing should be done. While national media howls, which is always a plus for conservatives, Floridians elected DeSantis with record numbers, and the forever demoralized Democratic Party of the Sunshine State had yet another dark night of the soul. All of these decisions were made and executed when DeSantis recognized leverage and then executed on that leverage without hesitation, which makes his presidential campaign all the more puzzling because they didn't seem to recognize the leverage that they did have nor did they execute on it from my perspective DeSantis was on the right side of the immigration issue being the only person running in this race involved in sending migrants from the southern border to liberal areas in the north this is a trend that has turned the national tide on this issue if you see polling that says Democrats and independents believe the southern border is a problem and in some cases are for deportation, that only happens when Greg Abbott, mostly, and Ron DeSantis send people to northern areas. The press gave 
Ron DeSantis disproportionate coverage for his Martha's Vineyard stunt. So if you have that mind share, then why not execute on it and use it so you can be a very, very, very present part of this current issue? It never happened with DeSantis. DeSantis is also, because he got so much negative press for the migrant stunt, for the so-called don't say gay bill, and his fight with Disney, is very adept. And he's talked about it in the past. He talked about it in his, in his Twitter spaces announcement about how weaponized mainstream media has become. And for my money, I think he's got fairly compelling examples that play beyond the Republican base. For example, with the conversation about book banning, quote unquote. He, DeSantis, has often, I think he, he did a, a press conference once where he showed pictures from the books that had been listed to be banned. And they had to be blurred on the afternoon news. This is a compelling way to demonstrate that these books probably shouldn't be in elementary schools. If you can't show them on the evening news, then maybe they are not appropriate for somebody who is in single digits, your your precious little child. In his Twitter spaces, he also talked about how these things tend to come about about how they will begin with a liberal activist organization and then get laundered into the media. And by the time that it gets to what used to be reputable mainstream sources, they are pretty much copy and paste from the activist organization with little reporting done from the outlet itself. This kind of conversation, whether or not you agree with it, is fascinating in our modern discourse. We are all wrestling with the idea of who or what to trust. We all believe on some level that we are being manipulated. And if you have a take on this, especially if you might look at mainstream media different than you did in the past, then this is a way to bring people into your message. Ron DeSantis did not want to participate in mainstream media. And therefore, he denied himself the ability to get this message out to a larger and larger audience. The fact that he took himself off the field for this was a huge tactical and strategic error, something that he's admitted. He said he should have done more interviews at the beginning, and he's right. <laughs> he absolutely should have, because eventually they would have stopped if he would have prosecuted this line. Ron Sanders is good on television. Here's what he's not. A gifted retail politician. But then again, neither is Bernie Sanders. The difference is, is that we know Bernie isn't a glad hander and therefore we come to peace with it because he doesn't pretend to be. Ron's reaction, stilted, robotic, and odd, isn't awkward. His attempt to fit in is awkward. That's what makes us uncomfortable. His campaign needed to put him in places that pumped up his strengths and hid his weaknesses. He is a bit of a grumpy wonk. Don't hide it. Put it on Main Street. 
and then use his wife, who desperately wants to be Jackie Kennedy, to soften the idea of, well, I'm sure he's not an awful person. This lovely lady is his wife, and they've got three adorable kids toddling around. Soften him there, but don't pretend like he's just one of the bros, because nobody would want to sit down and watch a football game with Ron DeSantis. That's just not who he is. So I don't pretend that he is something that he is not. But for me, the obituary of DeSantis 2024 is not a death of natural causes. It's a murder. And the Trump campaign did it. They are far different from Trump campaigns of the past. They dismantled the DeSantis challenge with maximum pressure. They hit him before he was ready, and when they got new reaction, they knew to keep pouring it on. DeSantis never offered a counter-narrative, and the erosion got worse when Trump became more relevant than DeSantis because of the lawsuits. A key DeSantis strength was wiped away. Now, this is going to be a theme going forward. But Trump 2024 isn't the quixotic rambling wreck of 2016. It sure is not the overconfident, bloated money incinerator of 2020. This is a kill squad. DeSantis would have lost to Trump, in my opinion. And there's no shame in that. The shame for DeSantis 2024 is that he wasn't the last man standing. That eventually, the donors and media that DeSantis needed to supercharge his efforts looked to Nikki Haley. We're going to get to her shot after the break. But for now, the bell tolls for Ron. And friends, meatballs are off the menu. Your update brought to you by TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Reminder, this is the only reason why I'm out here in New Hampshire. It's the only reason why I've seen the the candidates. It's the only reason why I can tell you all of the with confidence predictions that I'm about to make on how this race is going to go. And a reminder, by the way, I got every single prediction right in Iowa. Probably not going to happen again. (laughs) But the reason why is because I can be here. Because I can see these campaigns in action and hopefully you guys know I cover this unlike anybody else I, I I don't know if there's any outlet that has the same angle as this one and it only happens because you guys make it happen take politics seriously.com that's where you sign up for the patreon and uh, at three bucks a week and, and now boy it is a great time to be on that you get the opportunity to get two bonus episodes. And these bonus episodes ain't just coming from, you know, with, with, with nothing. They ain't just uh, uh, participation trophies. These are big time episodes. I mean, the one that just came out Sunday uh, had my thoughts on a Nikki Haley, two Nikki Haley events that I went to. 
I will get to my thoughts on those and my predictions. Saw a Trump event with Matt Gates, Dean Phillips, Marianne Williamson. The the only reason why I can do this is because you guys pay. And uh, thank you. This is, in many ways, my dream job. You guys allow me to do it. I, I love, love, love the opportunity. So take politics seriously.com. Sign up at the $3 level. You get two bonus episodes each and every week. And then, of course, there's other bonus stuff there. So go ahead and check it out. But here's your update. California Republican Adam Schiff has amassed $35 million in his quest to be Senator Schiff, surpassing any of the Senate candidates in the nation. A significant sum is part of a high-stakes contest for the empty seat, or not, not the empty seat, but the seat that was vacated by Diane Feinstein. Despite California's negligible impact on Senate control, Schiff's fundraising prowess has started diverting resources and attention away from Democratic House campaigns in swing seats, causing Democrats who would like to either remain or get to the House to be a little annoyed. The scenario is causing concern within the party as the funds could potentially influence those House seats and the House is very much up for grabs in this next election. California, of course, is key for that quest with seven GOP House incumbents targeted by Democrats. But Schiff and his primary competitor, Representative Katie Porter, are engaged in an expensive and intensive primary battle using their substantial funds against each other instead of Republican opponents. Schiff's fundraising success is bolstered by his prominent role during the Trump administration's first impeachment trial, which enabled him to invest and grow his funds significantly. Porter, known for her viral committee hearing moments, has also demonstrated impressive fundraising capabilities. The extensive cost of running a campaign in California with its large geography and population necessitates substantial funds. Schiff already spent over $15.9 million in ads, while Porter and other candidates have also invested heavily. Money, 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 money. Needed to run, especially in California. A lot of very expensive media markets. And you're reaching the largest population in the country. California's got the most people in it. And that means you need to pay a lot of money to do the direct mail, to do the media. What's crazy is that Schiff and Porter, because of the way California works, may very well be the top two people that are running against each other in the general. So I would not expect this hoovering of cash to be up anytime soon. And it might wind up keeping the Republicans in power in the House. But that's a long way down the road. Montana Republican Congressman Matt Rosendale has indicated a potential run for the U.S. Senate in 24, a move that has long been speculated. In a recent social media video, Rosendale expressed that he is, quote, heavily considering running for the seat currently held by Democrat John Tester. He highlighted the support that he's received from Montanans, including state legislatures and leaders such as the Montana Speaker of the House and Senate President. This development comes amidst frustration with the current political leadership. Rosendale has criticized Mitch McConnell and the bipartisan establishment for their governing approach. Rosendale, of course, previously ran against Tester in 2018 and lost. He's been vocal in criticizing both 
Tester and Tim Sheehy, who has already announced for the Republican nomination. Tim Sheehy is going to be very well capitalized and will probably be the favorite over Rosendale. But according to Rosendale, both of them are the quote-unquote DC cartel and the McConnell and Biden establishment. His willingness to defy the Republican Party line, evidenced by his role in the removal of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy over the budget resolution, marks him as a distinct figure within the party. The NRSC has controversially suggested that Rosendell might be, quote, a plant from the Democrats, highlighting his previous support for Democrat-aligned super PACs and his alignment with Democratic efforts in the House. This internal conflict within the GOP showcases the complexities of the upcoming Senate race in Montana. This is going to be a big test for the Republican Senate committee. Can you just get a baseline-level Republican into that race? Because if you can, in a presidential election year, John Tester is toast. But if it's somebody controversial, that's going to make it about something more than just do you like Republicans or do you like Democrats in a heavily Republican state, then it might be more in play for Tester. And finally, this week, the U.S. Senate is anticipating a potential agreement on border security, a subject of intense negotiation for months. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Minority Leader Mitch McConnell have expressed optimism about moving forward with the legislation, which includes provisions for aid to Ukraine. However, the bill's success in the House is very uncertain, with House conservatives and former President Trump urging Speaker Mike Johnson to reject it. A significant challenge in the negotiations is the issue of parole, with Democrats and Republicans at odds over its inclusion and alteration. The bill's passage is crucial for Ukraine's aid as the conflict nears its two-year mark. In the House, Republicans on the Oversight and Judiciary Committee are advancing their inquiry into Hunter Biden with scheduled interviews with two of his former business associates, Mervyn Yan, an official with Chinese energy company CEFC, and Rob Walker, a former business partner of Hunter Biden, are set to appear before the committee. The focus is on Yan's relationship with the Biden family, and Walker's LLC, which is alleged to have been used to receive foreign funds and distribute money to the Biden family members. These proceedings precede a scheduled closed-door deposition of Hunter Biden, now scheduled for February 28th. See if that happens. The inquiry is part of the Republicans' broader investigation into the Biden family's business dealings with the FBI, having previously interviewed Walker in 2020. The current political climate reflects a deepening division with Democrats preparing to blame House Republicans if they reject the Senate's border security deal while the House GOP continues its scrutiny of the Biden family. There is no doubt that the Republicans are not going to make this border deal easy. In fact, I I think that there is going to be enough push to scuttle it. Will Mike Johnson bring it to the floor? and allow Democrats to vote on it? Will there be enough Republicans that want to make the deal? That is going to be the issue to watch. That is your update brought to you by TakePoliticsSeriously.com. A reminder, $3 a week gets you two bonus episodes each and every week, and they are from the campaign trail as long as there is a primary campaign trail to cover. Will Nikki Haley pull off the upset? 
Will we set up the South Carolina street fight? No. You can hear me cover everything at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3, two bonus episodes each and every week. But let's get to the predictions. Okay. All right. All right. All right. It's a little, this is, this is some pressure because I did so well with Iowa. I, I nailed everything in Iowa. I nailed that DeSantis was going to come in second. I nailed that Trump was going to be over 50. I nailed that Nikki was going to be in third place. I nailed that the reason why was because of the weather. I nailed that Vivek Ramaswamy was going to drop out. And I even nailed that Asa Hutchinson was going to drop out, which he had not been doing for months. Funny Asa Hutchinson moment where he tweeted out that he was rooting for Nikki Haley and then had to clarify that rooting is not an endorsement. God, politicians. Oh, my God. Ron DeSantis is out. Chris Christie is out. This is indeed a two-person race, something that Chris Sununu and Nikki Haley have been saying in their campaign stops. For folks who did not listen to the Patreon episode, you should become a patron because there's good stuff there. But I saw two Nikki Haley events. And I really, really, really hated both of them. Second one, I didn't hate as much as the first one. First one, I just got poison vibes from. Poison. And it's not because of the energy in the room. There's a lot of people at these events. These events are packed. And there's a lot of new voters. Some clips last night of Nikki Haley in Exeter where she brought out Judge Judy, and it was people hanging from the rafters. It's when she starts to get talking that you just don't have a connection between her and the people. And New Hampshire wants to get wrapped up in things. New Hampshire wants to have an outsized effect on this election. I don't know why Nikki Haley's stump speech is so bloodless. She has, she opened both the stump speeches I saw with talking about the national debt. And look, the national debt is a serious issue. And I understand that it bolsters the fact that she's an accountant in the white house, but you can't do that without an understanding of what the surface level problems are. Don't tell me that the national debt is a problem. Explain to the people why the national debt is affecting them right now. Why the reckless spending is driving up inflation. Why the bills that were passed both by Trump and by Biden during COVID has led to the fact that you can't leave the grocery store for under $100. That's what you need to do to make these larger ideas, these very numbers heavy ideas, real. There's none of that in Nikki Haley's speech. Nikki Haley is in a reactive campaign. She is explaining why she's not a warmonger. She is explaining why Donald Trump is bad. That's not where you want to be. You want to be leading the narrative. And whether or not you get all that right, Here's one thing that I do feel is campaign mispractice. 
you need to be telling each and every resident eligible primary voter in New Hampshire, we're gonna win. And in both of the events that I saw with Nikki Haley, she didn't say it. That is blood in the water. That is quitting before the game is over, in my opinion. To play a lowered expectations game. I get doing it in Iowa. You weren't going to win in Iowa. That's fine. But New Hampshire's all or nothing for her. You can't tell me that a strong showing in New Hampshire will lead to a win in South Carolina. We, we, are, we are running out of runway here. At a certain point, you just crash into the ocean. So for Nikki Haley to not go up on stage and say, New Hampshire, you are a tremendously important part of our American democracy. You are people that are always right. Now, you might be early, but you're almost always right. You're almost always right with the standard bearer of the Republican Party. Uh, a show of hands, how many people were here and voted for John McCain in 2000? And trust me, man, I'm in these crowds. It's a bunch of gray hairs from New Hampshire. You're telling me that these boomers wouldn't love to be recognized for a thing that they did 24 years ago? God, it would be catnip. Oh, they'd all throw their hands up. How many people of you uh, uh, voted for Donald Trump in 2016 when people said that that was impossible? Oh, a bunch of people would raise their hands. Then you say, and that's why I know, because I got you guys here with me. I know that you're going to make the right decision again. You're going to make the right decision. You're going to choose competency over chaos and division. You're going to choose a fresh start for the Republican Party. You're going to choose Nikki Haley tomorrow. And when we win, when we win on Tuesday, they'll say what I just said before. New Hampshire was right. Nothing like that. In fact, she ended the event that I saw on Saturday. Maybe it was Friday. Yeah. Yeah. No. uh, Anyway, Saturday, I think it was. Yeah, it was Saturday. She ended it with, hey, you know, if you don't vote on Tuesday, you won't be able to you won't be able to complain when it's Biden versus Trump in November. What is that? What is that? You're the annoying person on social media. I I, I don't get it. Uh, and by the way, the Trump campaign is seized on this. They put out a memo last night saying. Oh, boy, there was a lot of talk from the Haley campaign about how she was going to win. Now they're not talking about how she's going to win. I mean, let's just run all their quotes that they said that this was a must-win event. There is no tomorrow for Nikki Haley if she doesn't win, in my opinion. So, the only thing that gives me pause is the fact that there are a lot of people at her events. New Hampshire shows up to these things. And there are a lot of undeclared, they call them undeclared voters here uh, who are allowed to vote in Republican and Democratic primaries. 
there were a lot of Democrats that unregistered from the Democratic Party and registered for the Republican Party because New Hampshire, to their credit, has a rich, rich tradition of electoral utility. Donald Trump is reviled amongst these people. Do they really need to be inspired by Nikki Haley? Let's say Nikki Haley is running a subpar. I'm going to say it. Nikki Haley is running a subpar campaign. She's not running a great campaign. Does it matter? Well, according to the polling, it does. I have only seen one good poll for Nikki Haley in New Hampshire that had it within the margin of error, and that is an outlier. The most recent polls that are out here today, they are Boston Globe, Suffolk, Trump up by 19, Insider Advantage, Trump up by 27, Washington Post, Monmouth, uh, Trump up by 18, WHDHTV and Emerson, Trump up by 16, CNN, Trump up 11, St. Anselm, Trump up 14. That's an RCP average of 17.5. I don't see a reason why that's going to not be the case. The energy around the Trump candidacy is immovable, unshakable, and now has more momentum with Ron DeSantis dropping out. I don't think that that 6% of DeSantis voters are never Trumpers. I think that those 6% of DeSantis voters that are here in New Hampshire were true believers. They believed in Ron DeSantis over Donald Trump. But I, I think all the never Trumpers have long since left that campaign for either Nikki Haley or Chris Christie. And all of the Trump persuadables left for Trump a while ago. So if Ron DeSantis is out and if he is endorsing Donald Trump, I do think that that 6% goes to him as well. And so my Republican prediction is Donald Trump over 50% again. And I'm going to say Nikki Haley under 40. So Trump somewhere in the low 50s. Nikki Haley somewhere in the mid-30s, mid to high 30s. I don't believe she'll drop out. I believe she will go to sleep Tuesday night convinced that uh, she can still bring this to South Carolina and that, you know, now it's a, it's a, it's a two-horse race and this is, this is going to be a whole new ball game. She'll convince herself for that but i i will i will be less enthusiastic about it and i don't know if she'll actually make it to south carolina because remember that that race isn't until the end of february so it's like a month from now and every week that goes by in this pressure cooker is a month's worth of pressure I don't know if she'll make it if she doesn't come in second place, and I uh, and I don't think that she is going to win. 
I honestly don't. I, I really, you know, I don't think that's the case. All right. Bonus prediction. I'm going to do the Democrats, too. This is a total shot in the dark because I don't know any of, I don't know how you poll. New Hampshire is very, very hard to poll in general. Um, and the only reason why I'm taking these seriously is like, just because it very much matches my, my feeling on the ground uh, for the Republican side. But the Democratic side, New Hampshire really doesn't like being disrespected. And Dean Phillips has been around. I think Dean Phillips is a competent politician. I do think his nice core Ted Lasso act is interesting. I don't think that it's enough to beat Joe Biden in a write-in. So I do think it'll be close enough for us to talk about Dean Phillips. God, but I still don't even feel really good about that. All right, screw it. Here we go. I'm going to say Biden write in at fifty. You want to know what? It's going to be the same. It's going to be the same as the Republican side. Biden write in at fifty something, like low fifties. Dean Phillips at thirty something. We'll go low thirties on Dean Phillips. Uh, and that will be enough for this entire situation to be memory hold by the Democratic establishment. And Dean Phillips will be scrubbed out of all <laughs> history and uh, pictures going forward. So there we go. Donald Trump over 50. Nikki Haley under 40. Biden right in over 50. Dean Phillips in the low 30s, which is an overperformance of his polls. And there we go. Those are your predictions for the New Hampshire primary. And that will wrap it up for us today from New Hampshire. This will be the last New Hampshire episode that we do. I am watching an ABC local uh, affiliate here, Channel 5. Senator Maggie Hassan is out with a bunch of write-in or Biden protesters. Not protesters, but supporters? Yes, supporters. Anyway. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio, live in New Hampshire, but based in Austin, Texas. PX3 is the name of the show and the letters that will be the prefix of all of our URLs. The young American at gmail.com is where you can send in your email. PX three tweets is where you can see a video from the show up to and including uh, clips from the road. We've been posting a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. In fact, you know, probably a good time for us to go over my Instagram which is uh, Justin R. Young on Instagram and my TikTok, which is Justin R. Young as well. Justin R. Young is my personal Twitter. PX3 Tweets is where you can find the videos on that site. 
catch me live on the internet, px3live.com, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I will be back on that on Friday, back on the Twitch on Friday, px3live.com. Share this podcast with your friends, family, and clergy, px3podcast.com. Of course, you can support us, paypal.me slash payjury with a one-time donation. Venmo is justin-young-20. Cash app is px3cash. And you can send me anything you'd like in the mail. P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Again, that is Post Office Box 153184, Austin, Texas. 78715. The only place that you can get bonus episodes is our Patreon. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts for a week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcasting schedule. And our $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the show. Like these fine folks. Alo, ye old pinball shop. John, DP4 Bongo, Sam, John, Edwin, Kathy Mack, Invoke Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, Brian, Edison, Jeremy, a dog named Checkers, Sarah Jeannie, Matthew, Dr. G, Neil, his nerdiness, Charles, Darren, Idris Arslanian, Berkeley, Stephen, Nomadic, Terran, Molly's delightful demeanor, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Dustin, Brad, D-Laser, Nick Wood, Just Another Pilot, Middle-Aged Mike, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, The Jan D, Really? Andrew, Gloria, that's my mom, Neemeister, Jay, and Devon, the CFP. All right. Let's see how we do. I'm already having second thoughts about my Dean, my Dean machine call of him overperforming. I don't know. I don't feel great about that one. I feel good about my Republican one, but I'm also feeling the pressure because I nailed it so hard in Iowa. All right, that's it from the Granite State. This is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics, but this is the only show that dares discuss all three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) Dog and Pony Show Audio.